And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it is Wednesday. It is hump day as we get through the middle of this week. Getting ready to wrap up the month. Uh, Halloween just right around the corner next Tuesday. And then, of course, we've also got the Federal Reserve meeting next Wednesday, their announcement November the 1st. So, again, just getting ready to wrap up the month. Uh, earnings season well underway. Yesterday, of course, two big earnings announcements. Uh, we had a lot of earnings announcements yesterday. Visa, Hilton, a uh, whole lot of companies. But the two biggies yesterday, Microsoft and Google, uh, very interesting responses to the earnings reports. Microsoft had a good report. Um, Microsoft's trading up about 3% this morning or so. Google had double-digit revenue growth. Now, this was actually very good news for Google in terms of their revenue um, because they've been growing at single digits, so a very sharp increase in their uh, growth rate and their revenue. But uh, the stock down about 6, uh, 6% this morning because of a little bit of weakness in their cloud revenue, um, which was kind of interesting because it wasn't that big of a decline uh, or big of a miss, I should say. Um, still growing uh, revenue there. And again, overall, the report uh, from all their other sectors as well, doing very well, beating both uh, top, bot, top and bottom line. But again, market really focusing on that cloud revenue for Google, uh, pushing the stock down about 6% this morning. So again, a uh, bit of a dichotomy uh, in, in some of the mega cap seven today. So they're gonna kind of offset each other just a little bit in the markets. Uh, but overall, the, the news from Google is dragging down the S&P and the NASDAQ a little bit this morning. And we'll kind of go through the markets here in just a moment. Um, but uh, again, it's just, you know, this is, you know, kind of this processing uh, that we're in right now, companies, and, and we've seen this so far uh, in earnings season, is that companies that kind of miss are really getting punished a lot more than companies are being rewarded for beating estimates. So it kind of tells you a little bit about the market environment that we're in right now. Um, you know, one of the other things that we've talked about a while, uh, for a while now, is of course, small cap and mid cap have really underperformed. And this continues to be a market that is very bifurcated in performance. Uh, again, if you take a look at the uh, relative, the uh, equally weighted index. So if you take a look at the S&P 500 uh, this year as an example, it's doing very well year to date. We're still up about 10% uh, year to date. But again, if you take a look at the equal weighted index, it's a very different picture. Uh, you take a look at the equal weighted index, we're basically uh, you know flat for the year. Uh, I'm bordering on uh, being negative for the year. So again, when you take, when you strip out the impact of those big mega cap weighted stocks, the performance of the overall market has not been great this year. Uh, it's even worse when we get down into small and mid cap stocks. So just using kind of the Russell 2000 as a proxy for small and mid caps of even a worse performance uh, for small and mid cap stocks. And interestingly enough, these are the companies that are most at risk going into next year because of the higher interest rate environment, uh, stricter lending standards that we're having from banks. You know, this is what we call zombie companies. There's a lot of companies that are dependent on debt in order to stay in business. And profitability is now becoming a much bigger issue for a larger majority of these companies. And without profitability, it makes it very hard to make interest payments 
on debt, and particularly when that debt has to be refinanced at a higher interest rate. So this really becomes problematic for a lot of companies in the small and mid-cap space. Um, but this is also kind of the important point about all of this is that as we think about the markets, right, if we are going into an economic recovery, and again, we just saw, you know, um, you know some economic reports out yesterday uh, that, you know, show, you know, the, uh, at the S&P Global PMIs showed a little bit of an uptick and improvement there. You take a look at estimates for the third quarter GDP now running over 4% for GDP growth. So if the economy is doing so well, right, then small and mid-cap companies should be doing very well because small and mid-cap companies are the companies that participate best in early economic recoveries. Uh, and this is just you know, a function of if everybody's getting back to work and if everybody's buying stuff and the economy's doing so well, these companies should be generating a lot more revenue, right? They should be doing a lot better and markets should be picking up on that. So there's this big dichotomy right now between what the economic data says and what the markets are saying about where we are in the current economic cycle. So just something to kind of think about. But here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Uh, the market yesterday hanging on by its fingernails. Now, we talked about this break of the 200-day moving average. We broke it yesterday, got back above the 200-day moving average. And this is what I was talking about previously is you've got to be a little bit careful of that initial break to make sure that it's actually going to break. Again, we were oversold. And, you know, seeing a little bit of a bounce here, not surprising. Now, again, the market's going to open a little bit weak this morning because of the Google earnings announcement. Uh, we'll see if that stays the case all day. You know, we've seen some days uh, recently where markets open down and then we get a lot of buying into the, to the day. We've also seen other days where the market opens down and stays down. So, you know, how the day ends, we don't know. But we're wrestling with this 200-day support right now. Uh, the market needs to try to hold on to that. We'll see what happens, you know, by the end of the day. And again, as I said, what's important is where we end the week. So uh, if we get to the end of the week and we're below this 200-day moving average, then that's something that we'll have to take a stronger look at heading into next week, of course, the end of the month. But if we start to take a look at the S&P, and then let's kind of shift through some other sectors of, or, or some other areas of the market right now. Uh, the volatility index uh, recently spiked up above 21. We've gone through a very long stretch with the volatility index below 20. Had a decent rise here with this recent sell-off, this jump in interest rates, sell-off in the market. Nice little pop in, in uh, kind of fear of the market. Uh, we're now getting a sell, uh, very close to a sell signal in the VIX, which means a lower VIX coming uh, from a fairly high level. So again, if the VIX starts declining, volatility starts decreasing, that'll be a, a support for stocks going forward over the course of the next few weeks because a declining uh, VIX, you know, less fear in the markets uh, will bring buyers back into the markets. Again, there's that big short position sitting against stocks right now as well. So keep a watch on that. We're not, you know, not grossly overbought, not over sold either. So if we do trigger the signal, we are going to see potentially higher prices short term. Um, same thing for interest rates. Uh, interest rates, of course, been weighing on tech stocks in particular. Higher rates don't work well on companies dependent on earnings growth. Um, but we're about to trigger a sell signal on interest rates, suggesting lower interest rates, at least from this level short term. That would also help buoy stocks in the short term as well. Uh, again, just kind of this correlation that we've had uh, in the markets. Gold, on the other hand, has had a very sharp move here because of this whole Israeli conflict. Uh, that has really pushed the MACD and the overbought condition in gold to fairly high levels. So a good area right now to maybe take a little bit of profits 
uh, if you're long gold and then look for a pullback in gold prices to add back to your position if you want to maintain it. But again, the good, you've know, had a very strong outsized move because of this potential conflict. And you know, that's giving you a nice area that takes a little bit of profits here. Uh, so you might want to think about that. And then lastly, if we just you know, kind of go back to the NASDAQ itself, this is really where a bulk of the leadership is because of Microsoft, Apple, Google, uh, these type of companies. Uh, uh, NASDAQ stays well above the 200-day moving average, so again, much better technical position than what we see with the S&P. It has been very oversold. We've had a nice sell-off in the NASDAQ so far this year, uh, back from the June highs, that kind of summer weakness we had talked about. NASDAQ very oversold here. Uh, as well. So again, you know, if we're going to see a continuation of this kind of uh, narrow rally of these mega cap seven versus the other 493 stocks, you would expect it to show up here. So again, you know, we'll have a little bit of early turbulence in the markets because of the Google earnings, uh, Microsoft on the other side being on the upside. We'll see how the market plays out today. We'll keep you up to date. Uh, tomorrow we'll kind of see where we are uh, relative to our support levels. But that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we come back, Lots of stuff to get into. I want to talk a little bit about those economic reports yesterday because there is a bit of a dichotomy here about what that data says versus what the assumptions are. Be right back after the break for more of The Real Investment Show. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, as I was saying, uh, you know, right now, if you take a look at estimates for the fourth quarter, a lot of the uh, economic estimates for the fourth quarter right now, uh, the, uh, economists have been ratcheting up their estimates for GDP. Um, you know, we now see estimates for the fourth quarter, kind of the evolution of, the, uh, sorry, I'm saying the fourth quarter, I meant the third quarter, apologies. You know, now looking at 4.3% uh, of economic growth for the third quarter. And again, you know, look, we've had strong retail sales data uh, recently. I'm writing a report on this for next Friday. But, you know, retail sales on a nominal basis up 0.7%. Very strong. Obviously, consumers are just spending like crazy, right? Um, as we've talked about before, you know, you've got to be a little careful with that data because we don't measure it in volume, Right are people going out and buying two packs of toilet paper versus one, right? Are they spending more for more stuff, right? Or are they still buying the same, you know, 12-count pack of toilet paper, whatever they normally buy, and just paying a lot more for it, right? Because we measure retail sales in dollars, not in volume, right? Not, not, the, not the volume of inventory that's bought, we measure it in dollars. So if you're spending more dollars to buy the same amount of stuff, it looks like retail sales are going up. And this is why you have to look at it on an inflation-adjusted basis. And we don't really pay much attention to that. We pay attention to the nominal. That's what feeds into these GDP estimates. Employment growth has been strong, yes. You know, 323,000, shocker number, you know, last, uh, last employment report. A lot of that's been government jobs. Um, but also a lot of it is very low-wage paying jobs. It's leisure, hospitality, fast food workers, etc. Not the type of jobs that typically lead to sustainably stronger economic growth. 
But again, those are the data points that feed into these GDP estimates. Oh, numbers have been great. So obviously the economy is growing gangbusters, right? You know, 4.3% growth in the third quarter. Now, again, just that's annualized. So you have to assume you take 4.3, divide that by four, right? So you have about 1.15% growth in the third quarter. You know, and you're assuming that it's going to be the same rate now for the next four quarters, right? So that's how you get the annualized number. But I bring this up because, you know, we, we have that data. And then we look at a lot of these manufacturing surveys that come out, these services surveys. And they, they are telling us that activity picked up a little bit in the, in the most recent quarter, but not to the degree that we're talking about. For an example, yesterday we had the S&P Global U.S. Manufacturing Index that came out. And yes, it's clearly been upticking. We talked about this before is that, you know, you've had a very, very big decline in manufacturing activity since 2022. And nothing goes straight down. But, you know, we are seeing, you know, we're below 50. That's normally contractionary territory. Um, and we've been kind of jostling around here for the last few months. See, and we did. And, and you can see here we have had, a, a, you know, some uptick in activity we went from 49.5 to 50. So. But, but again, if you're talking, and again, you know, yes, I, you know, I can see the uptick in economic activity, but it certainly doesn't suggest that the economy is booming at 4.3% growth, right? Just a, just a little bit of a difference. Um, you know, if we take a look at the new order index, right? So how many people are placing new orders for stuff? Well, that's improved also, but again, it's improving from very low levels. So yes, we've seen a pickup in activity, and, and you think about this as well in terms of how we operate within the economy. So again, you know, back in 2021, we were just buying everything, right? Because we had all this money sent to our households. And in 2022, that money started going away, and so new orders were declining. Plus, we kind of bought everything we wanted, and so we didn't need to really buy much of new stuff. So new orders declined, but you get to a point to where you have to have what I call a restocking cycle, right? I've just kind of sold all my inventory. Remember, we used to talk about, you know, the inventory overhang. We had all this inventory and we've worked off most of that inventory overhang. So you kind of get to the point, you just got to kind of restock here a bit. And so it's not surprising that we've seen an uptick in some new orders. We've seen an uptick in some activity. But again, it doesn't really suggest that the economy is growing gangbusters like it was back in 2021 or even 2017, 2018, right? When, you know, we were growing it, you know, new orders were above 55. You know, we're just barely above 50 right now. We're 51. And very likely we're going to see new orders decline as we get later into the year, right? So we just, we have these bounces in the data kind of along the way. But it's not just the manufacturing side. We see the same thing on the services side as well. So, again, we have to look at both sides of the economy. We can't just look at manufacturing and just say, okay, well, manufacturing says this, this is what it is. We have to look at services. Services make up about 80% of the economy right now. Manufacturing is about 20 But, again, we see the same thing in services. So, now, here's where we're hiring all of those leisure, hospitality, fast food workers, right? We're in the service industries. And, yes, services ticked up in the last month, but certainly doesn't suggest that the economy is growing at 4.3%. Again, it's just the dichotomy 
in the data. If, if services was growing at 55, then you we could say, well, yeah, it makes sense that we're hiring all these people for fast food services and other other jobs. But again, the, the services sector is bordering on contraction here. So uh, again, it just isn't really that supportive of the narrative. Now, I'm not saying importantly that you know, the narrative is wrong by any stretch of the imagination, you know, but we're, we're trying to, you know, put some kind of facts or at least some kind of analysis behind this kind of headline economic data that suggests the economy is just growing gangbusters here. Because again, we, we don't really see that in a lot of the data. And, and in fact, you know, the, uh, if we take a look at the Federal Reserve, the Philly Fed, manufacturing index, we see the same thing, right? You know, just see continued weakness in that index as well. And, you know, it's this is across all of the manufacturing indexes, whether it's the Dallas or the Richmond Fed, we're seeing the same type of persistent weakness. Again, back to manufacturing, though, uh, that's only 20% of the economy, so we have to keep that in mind. But importantly, when we start looking at other areas like prices paid, right? We're, we're you know, a lot of concern about the the issue of inflation we've got this kind of runaway inflation and there's nothing that's going to bring it down but again we start looking at inflation data it's a bit of a different picture because what we're when we start talking about prices paid um it's not going up um and again if we take a look at for example um back to the s p global uh services index 80% of the economy, the prices being charged are declining. So the prices that are being charged to consumers are going down, not up. So again, that's a deflationary pressure within the economy. That also suggests that if I can't charge higher prices, now, so we go back and look at 2021's example, the prices charged were going through the roof, right? This one, we had inflation. Why do we have inflation? Because we gave people $5 trillion to, in checks directly to their households. They had money to spend. They went out to spend it. There was no inventory to provide because everything was shut down. So I was able to charge much higher prices for the same product. That is no longer the case. Inventory is back. I can manufacture stuff. I can get it out to the market. Services are, 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 are going. They're plentiful. Everybody, you know, all the Uber drivers are back. All the delivery, the Grubhub drivers are all back. You know, we've hired all these service people. So services now are back into a deflationary state. Now, they're still above 50, right, which is, you know, this kind of concern about inflation, but they are declining. And, and so when you take a look at what's getting passed through to consumers, it's, it's, a, it's certainly a very different picture. And again, suggests that you know, we have a weaker economic environment and again you know so not only though am i not able to charge my consumers more you know one thing that's helping profit margins though is that input prices the things that it costs me to manufacture my product or service are also declining so that that is helping that deflationary pressure in prices that deflation that's occurring within the economy is helping keep profit margins maintained so that's why companies are still able to kind of produce a profit margin, particularly if they were able to refinance a lot of their debt previously at lower rates. You know, this is helping maintain profit margins. So this is one reason. This is a reason why, you know, the markets are doing better right now. 
is because profit margins are, are still elevated and, and they're still holding in there because you're having deflation in input prices at the same time that I'm having I'm being able to I have to charge less to my consumers so I'm getting an offset I'm able to main, I'm not making bigger profits right I'm just kind of able to maintain my profit margin and we're seeing that in, in a lot of the data so you know again it's just you know there's when we take a look and, and again you know it's 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 a challenge this is a challenge that we have to deal with because you know we take a look at this headline data and, and you know, we go, wow, this, this data is really strong, and that's very supportive for this kind of no recession scenario. But again, then it doesn't really jive with a lot of the other data that is out there that suggests a, a much weaker environment. And this is the dichotomy that we're running into. So, you know, what are, no, and this is, this is the thing you've got to be careful of. So if you're listening to, you know, YouTube channels or, you know, you know, watching the mainstream media, you're getting all these different voices and opinions, you know, the world's coming to an end. We're going to about to have this massive, you know, inflationary spike and the world's going to die a fiery death on the other side. It's, you know, it's, it's all, you know, kind of guns and roses over here. It's, <laughs> I just had to slip that in. Uh, but, you know, you've got to be careful. And again, the data doesn't, the data can support both arguments. You know, I can make a case on both sides, but that's the challenge that we face as investors right now. And that makes it very difficult to navigate the markets. Anyway, be right back after the break. Don't go away. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. So it's just interesting, uh, you guys in the chat, <laughs> y'all have your own conversations. It's always funny. Um, but, you know, it's interesting, you know, just as I was talking about this big dichotomy in the data, right, which leads to potential errors in judgment and views about the economy and where we're going. And you can just read our chat on YouTube and you've got, you know, people that are, you know, con convinced that, you know, a massive decline is coming and the data doesn't support that, at least not right now. Doesn't mean it won't, just doesn't support it right now. And this is the problem with investing, as is always the case, is, is getting into these narratives. And again, I, you know, I get a lot of emails uh, you know, from people that watch other YouTube channels. And you know, there's people out there you know, talking about, again, hyperinflation and soaring interest rates. Uh, even Look, even Jamie Dimon recently kind of fueling the fire, talking about you know, interest rates can go up from here. We're, you know, it's a lot like the 70s, and we're nothing like the 70s. Uh, in the 1970s, we had no debt, um, as we had running no deficit to start with, had very little uh, household debt as a percentage of net worth. Um, today, it's you know vastly different. Um, 33 trillion in government debt, 150 percent of debt to household net worth. I mean, just you know, households are leveraged to the hilt, and you're talking about an environment where that leverage was generated on substantially lower interest rates. 
And so those interest rates have an impact on on economic growth, right? And so you're gonna have slower economic growth, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna have this, you know, massive decline in economic activity either, right? Um, but it also suggests that you can't have 15% interest rates, yeah, 10% interest rates, because just as that leverage is impacted by higher rates, those rates are going to break something. And when you break something, you're going to have disinflation. You're going to have lower rates of inflation. You're going to have, you know, slower economic growth. And as a function of that, yields fall. So, you know, this is the challenge that we have as investors. And, and again, a lot of these calls for the most doom and gloom type scenarios, sure, they could absolutely be right. But we have to think about these things in probabilities and possibilities. Historically speaking, the worst outcomes that people imagine never happen. And the reason for that is, is that when we get into that environment of something really beginning to break, we make changes. Not always for the better, but we make changes. Uh, financial crisis is a good example. That was, as, that was as dire of a situation in 2008 that anybody could imagine. You know, just a, an implosion of one of the major financing catalysts in the economy, housing. We bailed it all out. The outcome, had we not bailed it out, would have been far worse. Should we have bailed out the major banks? No, probably not. But we did. And that staved off the worst of the outcome being a de more depression-like scenario in the economy instead of just a very, very deep recession. So generally, the worst outcomes that you have, that you can think about, generally don't happen. So let's put this on a bell curve, right? Now, you know, we talk a lot about standard deviations on the show from time to time. And we talk about the, you know, in, you know when stocks get two standard deviations or three standard deviations, you know, oversold in one direction or the other. You know, we say, hey, this is really overbought or really oversold. And generally, um, you know, when you have that type of scenario, then you know that you're starting to kind of reach the more extreme levels of something. So, uh, uh, Brent, can you bring that up for me? Yeah. So I, I just want to show you, this is a standard bell curve of standard deviations. And so what's important is you got to do a little bit of math here. Now, I know it's early. I know it's 638 in the morning here, Central Standard Time. You probably haven't had a lot of coffee yet, but let's, we have to do a little bit of basic math <laughs> just so you understand what we're talking about here. Because I want to equate this back to your thinking when you're thinking about possibilities and probabilities. So a one standard deviation move is 68.2%. Now, if, you, if you're looking at a bell curve, you have zero in the middle. It looks like a mountain, so I'm, I'm describing this. So if you're in your car driving home listening to the podcast and you can't see the chart, it's okay. You have a standard bell curve, just you know, looks like, a, looks like a mountain. Split the mountain right down the middle. So on each side of that middle split, so zero is the middle. On each side of that, as you're starting to slope down each side of the mountain, right, that's 34.1% of all possibilities that exist in that range on each side. So you have to add those two together. So your one standard deviation encompasses 
of all known possibilities. In other words, the vast majority of things that are going to happen are going to happen within one standard deviation. Now, we step out to two standard deviations. That's going to increase the probabilities of things happening by 13.6% on both sides. So that is now 27.2%. We add that to the 68.2%. Now my math is getting really tough here. <laughs> we're now in the 96% range, right? So just in two standard deviations, we're, we're starting to encompass 97%, 97-ish percent, 96%-ish of all possible probabilities. So if you start thinking about the most dire outcomes, and we say, okay, we're going to have to assign this most dire outcome. Those are three and four standard deviation events. This is where we're talking about 98% of your possibilities and possibilities have already been priced in, right? You get into four standard deviations, now you're in the 99 percentile range. So the point is, is so when you start thinking about these four standard deviation type events, these things that could occur but don't normally happen. So the end of the world scenario, you assign that a very small probability on an outlier of the bell curve. From there, you start working your possibilities back. So if I'm building a portfolio and I'm saying, look, I'm really worried about this end of the world scenario, thinking about the possibilities and the probabilities across that bell curve, where do I assign that possibility do i stick it in the middle where it's a 68.2 percent probability or do i stick it you know where i'm talking about 98 percent of the probability of it occurring or is it something that's more likely to occur in the two to four percent range of of possible outcomes if that's the case that's how much you assign your portfolio to that environment there's nothing wrong with assuming that something's going to happen, but you have to assign it a reasonable possibility for that to occur. And you've got to come up with a reason. So just because you listen to some guy on the internet, including me, by the way, <laughs> just because you're listening to me doesn't mean I'm right. And just because you listen to these other guys doesn't mean they're right. So this is why you need a variety of opinions that are looking at the data saying, look, historically, this is what has happened. This is what drives inflation. This is what drives economic growth. This is what, you know, has normally happened in these situations. And this is what we know are at least fairly confident is going to occur based on these variables. Those are the things that you assign to the middle of your bell curve. That's where you build the bulk of your portfolio. Then if you do happen to have one of these outlier event occurs, then you have a hedge in place. Whatever that is. But the biggest problem that you run into is that you assign this outlier probability or possibility, I should say, as a probable event, and you build a big chunk of your portfolio around a misallocated portion of risk. 
And so this is why it's so very important. This is why investors, and we've talked about psychological behaviors uh, you know, earlier this week, and we've written articles on this. This is why investors underperform over the long term. You know, look, every investor, every manager, especially this year when you have you know, such a bifurcated market between the top 10 stocks and everything else, every manager is going to underperform from one year to the next. That's just, you should expect that. You should not expect to beat the market every single year. It's just not realistic. Things occur. But the reason that the vast majority of investors underperform over the long term, over 20 and 30 years, is because they misassign their allocations relative to the probabilities and possibilities of outcomes. And so it's very important to, to, to analyze these things. And, and look, there's a lot of guys out there right now that are talking about basically end-of-the-world scenarios, and that's not going to happen. Could they happen? Absolutely. There is certainly a risk that some of these end-of-the-world scenarios could happen. And if it does, none of this other stuff is going to matter anyway. We're going to be all scrambling for lead. It's not, it's not going to matter that you've got gold in your in your house because you better have lead because that's what we're going to be talking about being the rare commodity at that point. All right, be right back after the break. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So I just want to kind of wrap up this conversation where we talk about possibilities and probabilities and investing and and you know, why it's important. You know, our job and, and, you know, my job in particular, and of course, you know, I work with Michael Leibowitz um, as well. Uh, Nick Lane, who's our one of our um, senior analysts for our company. We're managing portfolios. You know, we have to analyze the data for what it is. And, and it's interesting because, you know, some people think I'm super bullish some people think I'm super bearish because of the articles that I write. I'm not either, right? Um, I'm agnostic, and I try to remain as agnostic as possible because I have to look at just the data. What is the data saying? What are the technicals of the market saying? Technicals of the market are still bullish. They're not bearish. The economic data is not terrible. It's not great, but it's not terrible. And there's certainly some things, and as we were talking about earlier with the employment data and the manufacturing indexes, there's certainly you know, these distortions that don't make a lot of sense right now. And of course, then we have numerous recessionary indicators, leading economic indicators, yield curves, et cetera. Certainly a lot of things suggesting recessions coming, but we still have a lot of fiscal policy running around the system. You know, this is, you know, 
the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, all those those billions upon billions of dollars are still flowing into the economy. And, and that's helping support economic activity right now. So we have to give it some weight. And again, this is why it's important when we talk about possibilities versus probabilities that we measure these things correctly and, and we think about them. And no matter what your view is, you should always have a varying opinion to counterbalance that with. So if you're watching somebody that's uber, uber bearish, go watch Jim Cramer, right? I'm not saying that Jim Cramer's right at all. I'm just saying you just need another voice that is not in the bunker. And it's interesting because, you know, it's, you know, there's there's a lot of talk lately about Jamie Dimon, right? And he's you know talking about you know high interest rates and all. the guy runs a bank. He's he's a smart guy. I'm not saying he's not a smart guy, but he also has a business. And if you take a list, if you listen to these guys, they change their opinions depending on where we are within any given cycle. I'll give you a good example of this: Jerome Powell. Jerome Powell's a smart guy, right? Head of our chairman of the Federal Reserve. Hope he's a smart guy. If he's <laughs> running our Federal Reserve, running our central bank. Recently, he just said that... Oh, okay, so let me back this up. So a lot of concern about the deficit right now, right? A lot of concern about fiscal policy. We had the debt ceiling debate earlier this year. And I remember also, just as a reminder, going into the debt ceiling debate, tons of guys out there saying, oh... This is going to be terrible. The world's going to come to an end. We, you know, we, we're going to default on our debt. And I was telling you, it's like, hey, we're not going to default on our debt. We're going, to, we're going to pass the debt ceiling. We're going to issue a bunch of debt to play catch up. And the world's not going to end. And we're not going to default on our debt. We're still going to get our Social Security checks. What happened? Exactly that, right? So all those people that were claiming that we're going to default on our debt, including the mainstream media, were wrong. Now, I'm not saying any of that's a good thing that we're just printing. I'm not saying that printing debt is a good thing and we're just issuing all this money and running up a deficit. That's not a good thing long term, right? I'm just saying that, you know, the most dire consequences generally never happen. That's my point. And it's interesting because Jerome Powell, and again, this is not just Jerome Powell. It's Ben Bernanke. It's uh, Janet Yellen. It is, the, you know, whoever's in office, whether it was President Trump or President Biden, whatever. Their opinions change based upon, you know, what's happening in the economy. If it's good for them, it's great for them. They're very optimistic. If it's bad for them, then they're very negative about it because it's not good for them. That's just the way things are, right? People are grabbing sound bites and putting those things out into the media. Jerome Powell. We don't comment on fiscal policy. This is what he told a questioner after the speech last week that he made. We know that we're on a fiscally unsustainable path. Okay? Right? We are, right? No, nobody disagrees with that. We just can't keep spending money the way we're spending money. Nobody disagrees with that. We can spend a whole lot more, though, first, a.k.a. Japan. <laughs> you know, we can, we can follow Japan, right? It's not, a, it's not a great outcome, but we can certainly do it. But it is unsustainable. And Jerome Powell's right. However, that's just his latest commentary. In 2020, it was a vastly different story. After Congress passed um, 
the first CARES Act, $2.2 trillion. This was right after the pandemic set in. Powell repeatedly called for more stimulus. This is the time, quote, this is a time to use the great fiscal power of the United States to do what we can to support the economy. Powell kept up his support through fall of 2020, and I'm reading this from the Wall Street Journal, by the way. Uh, and while he didn't explicitly back President Biden's $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan in 2021, by the way, that's another bunch of money floating around the system still, he did play down the concern that inflation could result. Well, that was wrong, right? And we told you that was going to be wrong. When you spent, we wrote articles about the sugar rush, and when you spend, you know, when you just inject a massive amount of capital into the, into the economy and you shut down production, you're going to have inflation. Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So it shouldn't have been surprising. His call for more fiscal support was, at the time, this is, this is from the Wall Street Journal, I'm just reading, well-founded. The early 2020 lockdowns represented an unprecedented calamity. Really? Unprecedented? This uh, financial crisis wasn't unprecedented? <laughs> Every calamity we have is unprecedented. But we have plenty of precedents to understand what happens when you do these things. The point is this. These people that are getting interviewed in the media, these people that you look to for advice and guidance, including me, are going to say whatever fits the narrative at the time, whether it's Jerome Powell, whoever it is. He's got a mission right now to bring down inflation, higher for longer. I'm not backing off. I'm not, you know, the fiscal situation is a problem until it becomes a real problem and then watch his storyline change oh well we need to lower rates we need to start buying debt we need to start doing these things because of this unprecedented calamity that's going on within the economy right now it will change and this is why it's so hard as an investor to be caught onto one of those bell curves because just at the moment that you think you're right, right, and that bell curve is, is about to play into your favor and that, pob, that probability or that small possibility you were betting on is about to come to fruition. And again, 2020 and the financial crisis were great examples of this. If you were bearish in 2019 going into early 2020 and you were betting on the collapse of the U.S. economy, you nailed it. That, that 1% tail that was sitting out there, that possibility that nobody believed, it came true for about three weeks. And then it was over. Because why? Because we flooded the system. We, you know, the government came to the rescue in every major form that it could figure out. We've never sent checks to households before, but we did it. So that whole thesis of the world ending ended in three weeks. And this is the, this is the risk that, I'm, that, that we're talking about. Now, there's a lot of people out there talking about the end of the world's coming, and they may be right until the response comes. And if you're on the wrong side of that bell curve when that response comes, that's what becomes your problem, not the government's problem.
And so this is why I'm just saying you got to be careful. I'm not, and, and I'm not telling you anything. I'm not, I'm not saying anything. All I'm, all I'm, all, all we're discussing is is understanding possibilities and probabilities, and we have plenty of history to look at what happens when the most dire of economic outcomes occurs. We know now what those responses are going to be. Even the Federal Reserve is telling you if they listen. If you, if you listen to what the Fed says when they have their speeches, we're not worried about breaking something because we have the tools for that. What's the tools? Cut rates to zero, buy QE, you know, do QE, send checks to households. That's, that's the tools. Jerome Powell has been very clear. I'm not worried about breaking something because I have the tools to fix that. What I don't have the tools to fix is this inflation problem right now. I've got to get inflation down. And he'll get inflation down because he'll break something. And that's okay because when he breaks something, he can cut rates, he can do QE, he can soft land the, the, the situation. It's still going to be a recession, but he can soft land it. It won't be the end of the world scenario. And he'll get inflation back to his target. And inflation will come down sharply. His bigger risk is deflation. That's the thing he really can't fix. Anyway, I hope you lead today's conversation with just this simple lesson. Is that just be careful of where you're placing your bets. Probabilities versus possibilities. That's, that's your job managing your money. Manage for the probabilities. Hedge for the possibilities. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow with Michael Leibowitz. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. His new article is out on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow.